That is surprisingly not a crazy application of the technology. And in fact, uh, one of the uh, our chief behavioral science officer at the, at the company actually did his PhD research on, on, on actually a related area. Welcome to How AI Happens, a podcast where experts explain their work at the cutting edge of artificial intelligence. You'll hear from AI researchers, data scientists, and machine learning engineers as they get technical about the most exciting developments in their field and the challenges they're facing along the way. I'm your host, Rob Stevenson, and we're about to learn how AI happens. Natural language processing has its claws in a vast array of AI applications. Of course, in our series, Alexas, and podcast transcript generation tools, but also, when we acquire or generate data, there's a good chance it has its origins in some kind of human communication. And if you want it to improve your tech, you're going to be conducting some sort of NLP. NLP is a huge part of the work that goes into Cogito's main offering, a tool that offers real-time insight to professionals conducting support calls, providing them with tips, strategies, and assets to improve the quality of the support they provide. To learn more, I sat down with Cogito's head of signal processing, Dr. John Kane. John explained the challenges represented by the oft-repeated truism, speech is more than text, and later provided an outline for a holistic approach to creating a bias-free environment within which to develop ML tools. In my past life, I was an academic. Um, I did my PhD actually across the road from here in uh, Trinity College in, in Dublin. My PhD was sort of focused on finding uh, techniques, signal processing techniques to detect um, subtle changes in tone of voice and voice quality. My sort of subsequent postdoctoral years, I spent sort of applying those techniques to different speech technology applications. So actually the lab I was involved with was the first to create a speech synthesizer for the Irish language for Gaelic, which was which was great. Also worked on- And all um, of the UK rejoiced. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, also worked on different areas like expressive speech synthesis, uh, detecting different vocal disorders, uh, speech emotion recognition, spoken dialogue systems, a, bu a bunch of different areas, which basically took my PhD work and sort of applied it to, to actual real, real speech tech applications. Um, so that was that was great. I thought I'd be an academic for the rest of my life. But then a friend of mine who used to be a professor at the University of Southern California. He's currently actually a CTO of a really, really interesting robotics company in the West Coast uh, called Embodied. Uh, while he was at USC, he uh, was working on a government-funded uh, research project that happened to have Cogito involved, and the CTO there and him spoke, and he was looking for somebody to come and sort of build the machine learning department at Cogito, and I got referred and... Fast forward eight years and we're here right now. And uh, yeah, I basically run the machine learning and signal processing department within engineering at Kajita, which is which is a great privilege. Yeah, the, the rest, as they say, is history. I really want to get into all of the, the speech synthesis stuff and the, um, the tone detection. We'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. Before we do, would you mind uh, explaining a little bit about Cogito and what the company does and kind of the chief opportunity there? Yeah, sure thing. Cogito spun out of the MIT uh, Media Lab. Um, so actually, uh, Professor uh, Sandy Pentland is one of our co-founders. And the Media Lab is sort of worldwide renowned uh, sort of research institution with expertise in sort of analyzing and modeling human behavior. 
and sort of a lot of their essence sort of is still exists in the in the, in the company today and um, so the real kind of high level focus of the company is to essentially analyze and uh, guide behavior to sort of elevate the sort of human experience rather than providing after the fact data analytics like a lot of folks do our focus is to try to help contact center agents and supervisors in real time in the moment while they're in in the throes of a conversation of an interaction and provide them with tips and guidance to help make their job easier and uh, help them be more effective which then results in uh, improvements in key performance indicators for those businesses it strikes me that there's two very large challenges there. One is providing accurate insight, right? Something that's actionable and that the user can say, oh yeah, you know what, that is better. And two, providing it to them in real time. Because no matter how accurate it is, as you say, if it comes in you know, in an automated email a couple hours later, uh, too little too late, right? So how are you able to make sure you can deliver this insight quickly and in real time? Yeah, that's a great question. So we apply a sort of area of machine learning, which we refer to as sort of signal-based uh, machine learning at the company. So, you know, a lot of traditional uh, machine learning approaches use static inputs, right? You've got images or you've got documents and you're, you're applying machine learning models to produce inferences based on those. And for instance, in the case of having it like a document, uh, like a tweet or something like this, you have the entire sequence available to you. The sort of design restriction for us is that we don't have all of the uh, data available yet. The data is evolving and is being produced incrementally as the conversation evolves. So we need to be able to sort of provide a sort of real-time low latency processing of this sort of progressively occurring data to be able to provide this sort of guidance and feedback. So our, our machine learning models and our processing has to be causal. Right? We can't look forward. And if we do look forward, we incur latency costs. And if we incur a significant latency cost, then the uh, usefulness of the guidance we provide to agents is significantly diminished. We have to find ways of, of dealing with this in a sort of a streaming-based manner. Um, and at the same time, taking account of the rich data that is available in those interactive conversations. Can you explain what you mean by causal? Yeah, by causal, I just mean looking back, right? So at a particular point in time, we use data which is uh, which has occurred up until this point in time. So if we're having a conversation right now, I can't use the words that you're going to say in a couple of seconds time, right? So uh, causal processing means that we're looking at this point in time and using any prior data uh, to, to make an inference. What would be the counter to that? What's the opposite of causal? So the opposite of causal is basically if you uh, if we had the entire conversation available, let's say that we took this this uh, radio show recording and we wanted to process it after the fact. If you're processing it after the fact, we can look forwards, we can look backwards, we can use any parts of that conversation. But when we're having this conversation right now in real time, well, we don't have the luxury of looking forward in, in time. So if you can't look forward in time and you can only look backwards, that's causal process. Is that an advantage when you can look at the entire context? Are there additional things that you can learn just by knowing how a conversation ended, for example? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And if you look at the kind of state of the art in natural language processing, it's for good reason that the, the best approaches right now are bidirectional processing right they they use forwards and backwards processing of the of the of the text data contained within the documents to make the best inferences possible unfortunately we don't have that luxury we don't have that luxury if we want to do it uh, in real time we have to only look backwards and that presents its own challenges the part of delivering this with that with low latency 
that's probably not something you worked on in, in academia and not part of a traditional machine learning practitioner's training education experience. Is that a different problem than what the typical AI practitioners used to used to working on? Yeah, I think I think it is. And it is from sort of multiple perspectives. So from one perspective, there's the sort of the modeling approach. How do I actually set up my neural network architecture to be able to actually process in such a way which is computationally efficient and which only looks backwards in time? And there's also challenges to do with how do I hang on to the sort of salient important data which happened, you know, prior in the conversation. So that part is challenging. But achieving sort of low latency and achieving the user experience we want actually requires sort of cross functional uh, approaches, uh, you know, working with engineers and human computer interaction specialists. We also have behavioral scientists at the company as well, because we're, what we're trying to achieve is a, is a user experience which produces positive behavior change. Um, and even if we produce really low latency inferences and trigger guidance uh, for, for, for the users, if they're not actually able to do anything with it, then it becomes pointless. So you have to achieve a kind of a, a user experience, which is designed in a way which is really helpful for the user to actually achieve that outcome. How would you define positive behavior change and then how would you measure it? Yeah, that's a great question. One big challenge, which maybe people don't refer to as much in a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of sort of blog post level uh, areas of machine learning is that actually labeling for areas for guidance uh, with human annotators is extremely challenging in the first instance. Um, so we have an internal uh, annotation team at Kajito who've gone through a lot of cycles of really understanding call center interactions uh, and understanding what parts of, of conversations are indeed guidable. Guidable in the sense of helping the agent come across more effectively or more empathetically with the customer or helping the agent be more sort of aware of, of data or documents or protocols which are useful in the particular scenario. Um, so labeling for that, those guidable regions of conversations is, even before you get to machine learning, is a, is a challenge in and of itself. Then you have the, the, the modeling and the inference of this, but it's not just detecting the, the guidable behavior, it's also assessing whether the intervention that you're providing, so the feedback you're giving to the context center agent, is actually re resulting in behavior change. So including that sort of feedback loop to the, to the algorithmic setup is, is really key to understanding whether, you're, whether your guidance is actually useful or not. In, in the beginning, are you looking at conversations and trying to clue in on here's where the conversation branches in this direction. Here's where they could have gone a different down a different branch and had a better outcome. There's different ways of sort of looking at it. So again, this whole problem is, is very cross-functional, right? It's not just machine learning scientists which, which solve uh, this particular type of problem. We have behavioral scientists at Kajito who indeed look at the sort of types of behaviors which are typically associated with effective calls, with calls that, that result in good perception of positive customer experience and these sorts of things. So as part of their research, they'll identify different sort of speaking behavior patterns that we may want to detect and guide on. Following that process, then we need to operationalize an annotation approach, a way we can label the data, because of course we need labeled data to build our models. Uh, and then from there, we'll, we'll look to apply machine learning techniques from there. Can I get a little wild with the implications here for a moment? Sure. Is there a possibility where I have on like wearable tech Google Glass, for example, and I'm running Cogito while I'm on a date and it's telling me like, don't say that, say this and you'll have a better date. That is 
surprisingly not a crazy application of the technology and in fact uh, one of the uh, our chief behavioral science officer at the, at the company actually did his PhD research on on, on actually a related area no so way. actually it's it's not as crazy as it sounds so you know from our perspective our from a business perspective right now we're focused on the enterprise call center and that's just that's just the area which is most which is makes most sense to us right now from a business perspective but we have applied our platform and our technology in in healthcare settings in in previous work and we've had collaborations with some of the big biggest hospitals in 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 boston um applying our technology there and of course we are interested and are excited about applying this technology to other types of interactive uh, scenarios uh, going forward it's just that right now the you know the, the main business impact is in the in the enterprise contact center got it well, if you ever want to branch into the uh, the 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 large and endless audience of feckless men on dates, I'm sure I'm sure that could be lucrative for you. Uh, <laughs> could, could you could you maybe give an example of what this would look like? Say, uh, in the example of an enterprise user who is using this in real time, what's an example of the kind of feedback that they would get while they were on a call? Sure. So, um, so imagine you're um, a contact center agent. It's also it's it's very very helpful to actually put yourself in 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 the shoes of these uh, folks. We've I've traveled down to a bunch of different contact centers over the course of my time at Kajido, and um, for I think the majority of the time, contact center agents they take a lot of calls, they deal with a lot of challenging uh, conversations, and they also from a just from a um, a screen real estate perspective, they have they have a lot of different applications up at the same time, and um, so. What our feedback, our, the feedback we provide uh, from our Kajido dialogue system is uh, basically small targeted nuggets of guidance which uh, occupy a very, very small area of the screen real estate. So they can either have a very, very small mini window that's kind of running in the corner of their of their desktop or we can use slide-in notifications. And the types of feedback that we'll give, um, we provide both feedback which is to do with acoustics and speaking style. So for instance, if the customer is in a heightened emotional state, we'll, we'll provide some guidance to the call center agent there. Or if the agent is speaking left far too quickly for the for this for the particular context we'll we'll provide feedback there we'll also provide feedback on the content of of the, of the speech so for instance if the customer is referring to some product uh, where there's a sort of an upsell opportunity uh, we can provide notifications which can give the agent a quick hyperlink to some knowledge source that they can refer to um, it can also be super important in terms of drug names so imagine you have a new covid drug and um, you're a new contact center agent and you're not familiar with the sort of latin spelling and pronunciation of this uh, this particular strange word um, we can sort of detect that in real time and provide the the, the sort of uh, uh, the feedback so that they don't have to try to spell it and try to look up knowledge sources uh, based on that that is amazing <laughs> so the the agent could be like oh there's there's this drug uh the name of it's escaping me right now and then your technology would be like bing here it is so you can tell them about it yeah yeah exactly and then the other thing is also providing uh providing feedback to the, the call center supervisors uh, so we can also help them be more aware of how their team is doing which is actually super important in the sort of covid era because there was this massive migration of contact center workers from from the offices they typically worked in back to their homes as a result of that sort of movement contact center supervisors who spend a large part of their time actually walking the floor in these offices 
could no longer do that and the 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 tool provides means of sort of having that sort of virtual walk the floor experience for for call center agents so they can continue to, doing their job even when there's uh work from home conditions yeah yeah exactly okay th- thanks for sharing that example because that's a little less black mirror than than how i was imagining it where it was like don't say that say this <laughs> yeah i think it's it's important it's important to bear in mind that what we're trying to do is we're not trying to replace humans uh, so i know there's of course been a huge focus on automation and chatbots and things like this that has not been our focus at all in fact our focus has been to sort of acknowledge what humans are good at right we're good at we're good at being empathetic right we're good at dealing with unexpected uh, problems which are outside the the training set right Th- those those sorts of things but where computers can be really useful machines can be really useful is in like consistency or in finding data that is available in knowledge sources um, and and those types of feedback and and sort of really leveraging the benefits of of machines to help people help people be more effective in their job uh, and uh, um, that's really the, been the focus of of the company rather than replacing folks yeah yeah definitely this is related a little bit to it sounds like your own research in academia across the street there at Trinity College where you were looking at the the tone and pacing and other perhaps non-content related elements of speech. And I'm so curious how that plays in to Cogito and just language processing as an entire application of AI, because there's so many things we clue in on in speech when we're listening to speech. And especially like in my job, I, I generate transcripts from the conversations I have. And when I read through them, I'm like, oh, it's just missing, you know, that spirit. Or it's like, oh, that that joke doesn't work in text because someone wasn't listening to the way it was delivered. And, and so I'm so curious how that plays in, how the detection of someone's own lilt, how they might raise their tone at the end of a sentence, detecting things like sarcasm. How are these non-word-based uh, elements of speech measured and then worked into Cogito and how important is it to to natural language processing as an entire application? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. The sort of cliched response from folks working in speech processing is that uh, speech is much more than text, but it's really it's it's really very true. Interactive in the wild conversational speech looks very very different than text. It looks very different than, you know, written articles, it looks very different than tweets. It looks very different than WhatsApp messages. Uh, it's an altogether different, uh, different form of communication. Obviously, there are there are aspects of it which which are shared, but there are aspects of it which are altogether different. And um, so, even like you said, even if you take perfect automatic speech recognition applied to a to an interactive conversation, uh, like we're having now, or for instance that we would have in a cafe or a pub. Sometimes you can look at that and it could be completely unintelligible. <laughs> and at the very least, it is extremely an extremely lossy representation of what actually was what went on. Like you referred to, you know, there's aspects of the person's, you know, speaking style which is completely, completely missing there. The other kind of interesting aspect to it is that, you know, seemingly straightforward and simple linguistic concepts from text can actually be a good bit more nuanced when you're dealing with conversations. So even even a concept like questions. Okay, I could be a contact center agent. I could ask you, what's your social security number, for instance. I could, I could ask that. But a lot of the time, questions are more subtle than that. They may be implied. You know, 
there's not a clear question mark where I'm asking uh, uh, for, for a response from you. And um, we also looked at um, the sort of concept of overlapping speech and interruptions in some previous research. We found like nine different ways in which uh, overlap and interruptions could happen in conversational speech. And it's actually really interesting. A lot of the time when you're interrupting somebody, you're not necessarily speaking at the same time as them. In fact, they could be, you know, pausing and very clearly their, their intonation is they're still thinking about the, the issue and then you you may come in straight away and that's perceived as an interruption. Um, so seemingly si simple and straightforward concepts, uh, linguistic concepts uh, applied in, in, in normal text formats just can be a lot more nuanced in, in conversational speech. And then the other challenge for a machine learning practitioner is that, you know, like I said, if you, if you represent speech as text, if you just apply automatic speech recognition and just use that as your base, as your raw data, you're missing a huge amount of the, of the information. So a lot of you know, there's been a lot of really major breakthroughs in the natural language processing field over the last uh, over the last several years. In particular, finding really effective representations of text data. You've got like this word embedding stuff with word to vec, and then with BERT and all these transformer models. But this needs to be combined with uh, representations to do with timing, to do an intonation, to do a prosody, in order to really, really have all of the information available to make downstream inferences. The other challenge to do it as well is when you're dealing with multiple, multiple parties. If, if the two of us are interacting back and forth, let's say I want to try to make, a, make an inference on how engaged was this conversation. I'm just realizing at the moment I've been speaking for quite some time. <laughs> so maybe the engagement level has gone down a bit. But in, in terms of, you know, uh, trying to actually infer that level of engagement, well, I need to actually look at the, the speech from both parties, right? But how do I synchronize it? I'm saying words now, you're not saying words now. How do I actually fuse those those sort of representations to do with our speech in a way which is really effective? Um, so that sort of multimodal processing and synchronization is a really key challenge of this area as well. Um, so yeah, speech is definitely more than text. <laughs> The, the reason you've been talking for so long is because uh, you got in my head about the interruption thing. And I was like, oh, I better not say anything. I don't want to set off the, <laughs> the Cogito's technology. Um, oh, it's so fascinating. And just so, so many different challenges. And it strikes me that there's potential in every every application of AI for, for bias to creep in. And I'm sure yours is no different. Where would you say are the areas in your technology where there's a possibility for bias to creep in? And how can you work to make sure that doesn't happen? I think when you're thinking about bias or unfairness, it's important to consider the problem holistically. And it's important to consider bias both for machines and for humans. Um, so let's start with kind of machine learning models, right? So you're, you're, you're building a machine learning model. And before you even start collecting data, if you want to be serious about bias, well, you need to do two things to start with. First, you need to decide what your definition of bias or unfairness is. You know, there's different definitions that are out there from demographic parity, equality of odds. There's a bunch of different fairness concepts that exist, and they're not all the same. And in fact, optimizing for one may lead in a degradation for, for the other. So you really need to define at the start, what is fairness for us? The other thing you need to do is you need to identify what sometimes people refer to as protected demographic variables. Are there some slice of the population which you're concerned and maybe you know, may, may suffer negative effects of bias from, from machine learning models. So in, in what I'm gonna talk about here, I can, you can take a, an example as sort of elderly speakers. 
Okay, so let's say we have we have a definition, and uh, we have identified we're we're concerned about uh, elder elderly uh, speakers. The next step is sort of sampling. So if I'm building a machine learning model, I need to uh, sample data to create my training set. Uh, well, you better make sure that this protected variable is sufficiently well represented in your in your training set. So if if for instance I don't have any elderly speech in my training set. Well, when I apply it uh, in, in production, it's going to have much lower accuracy than it is for different demographic ca categories which have been well represented in the training set. So data sampling is really important. The next is, is labeling. So the vast majority of commercial machine learning systems are at least partly based on labels, labeled data, and those labels very often come from, from humans, and humans can be biased, right? So you need to have practices and protocols in place that can allow you to detect and mitigate bias that can happen from human labeling. Again, you have to be holistic in this. You have to think about recruitment of your human annotators so that they come from diverse backgrounds. You need to ensure that you have multiple human labelers per sample so that you can detect disagreement and potentially bias. And then you also need to do sort of auditing exercises as well to ensure that there's not unfairness being interjected at that point. Bearing in mind that the machine learning models will look to be an estimate of these human labels. So if they're biased, then the, the model will uh, perpetuate that, that bias and, and possibly even exacerbate it. Next, it's really important to have sort of metrics to do with unfairness. So we talked at the start about defining what we mean by, by bias or fairness. Well, it's really important to have sort of metrics when you're analyzing the performance of your, of your models, which don't just look at accuracy, but that look at metrics related to, to, to bias. There's actually been a lot of really uh, interesting sort of software work to enable this recently. Um, so um, people may be familiar with, uh, with TensorFlow, which is a machine learning framework uh, provided by Google. But this TensorFlow extended framework, which is basically a set of libraries which uh, help machine learning scientists have sort of effective reproducible machine learning pipelines. And they actually have a module within that framework which is specifically targeted at fairness. And you can sort of extend that with your, with your own definitions and your own analysis as well. So having those metrics and, and building them into the process is super important. There's also techniques then, let's say we have a, our model in production and we identify that there's, look, there's some bias happening towards some, some, some demographic category. Well, we can actually use machine learning techniques to sort of uh, do some de-biasing. So there was a paper by researchers from Google and Stanford, I think one of the first ones looking at sort of adversarial training techniques, looking to de do de-biasing. We've actually got some published work ourselves on, on gender de-biasing in uh, uh, speech emotion recognition. There's other techniques like gradient reversal techniques, which look to basically unlearn the those those biased representations uh, from from the from from the model. So there's there's techniques that can be done there as well. So the 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 really important thing with with building machine learning models is to be is to be really holistic about this this approach. But then there's also bias in 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 humans, right? So um, we've got in in our application, we've got contact center agents and we've got customers, both of whom can be extremely bias potentially and the key part of our technology is sort of providing objective consistent feedback to agents that can help them be aware of their own unconscious biases and can also escalate a call to the supervisor if for instance a caller is being extremely biased towards the agent uh, for some reason related to how they sound uh, which is also a phenomenon that happens as well so it, it, the key thing is being holistic and considering both bias to do with the, the machines and to do with people as well
And then when it comes to the vendors you partner with, say, wherever you acquire your data or any other external tools you might use to, to help you generate your technology, how can you assess those vendors to make sure that what they're giving you takes into account the holistic approach you just sort of outlined? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think it really relates to the metrics and how they analyze uh, the performance of their, of their models. If you ask a vendor, what are indeed the metrics that you use to assess the performance of your model? What demographic categories did you ensure that the model was not biased against? Uh, how was your training set represented across these demographic variables? And questions like that will, will let you know whether they've taken the issue of bias seriously or not. And then what's an example of a satisfying answer there? Well, if you hear a vendor say, well, look, we uh, actually factored our uh, analysis to, to consider uh, different demographic variables like age and gender, um, uh, maybe ethnicity or, or, or other types of uh, demographic variables like that. And we included uh, metrics related to those groupings as part of our test set. Well, you know, that's that's a pretty good sign that they're taking this, this seriously. Yep, yep, makes sense. And that, that's, I think, is great advice because this is going to come up for any AI practitioner, right, constantly. And you need to be vigilant because otherwise it will end up in your technology. This has been such a fascinating conversation and uh, we are approaching optimal podcast length <laughs> here. Uh, but, but before I let you go, I want to, I'm just so fascinated by the potential applications of your technology. I want you to without sharing the context of one of your office whiteboards and you know your 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 long-term product roadmap what is like your pie in the sky sort of fantasy about like a, a long-term really aspirational application of this technology well okay <laughs> so um i think that there are applications of of this technology in in sort of all forms of uh, human interaction so imagining like a podcast right now like we're doing giving myself some feedback in terms of how i'm coming across if it indeed seems like what i'm saying is is being registered or not i mean that would be super super helpful for me in that scenario you can think of different sort of business presentations and things like this where you're maybe doing some practicing and you're you're, you're practicing what your presentation is going to be like to 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 an audience and having that sort of real feedback as as part of that practicing exercise um you know multi-party zoom conversations trying to ensure that that there's say in 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 business meetings uh, over over zoom that there is um let's say sufficient time and fairness given to the different parties involved in that interaction that it's not just one person sort of steamrolling the whole conversation and that various parties on the on the uh, in the meeting get get their time and there's fairness applied in that in that respect so basically any applications whereby we can really help people perform at their best and and also kind of preserve sort of fairness i think i think any applications to do with that are are, are definitely ones that we'd like to apply our technology to how AI Happens is brought to you by Sama. Sama provides accurate data for ambitious AI, specializing in image, video, and sensor data annotation and validation for machine learning algorithms in industries such as transportation, retail, e-commerce, media, medtech, robotics, and agriculture. For more information, head to Sama.com.